This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, attorney and former deputy assistant to President Trump, May Mailman. Hey, Mike. Hey, May. So, as usual, we didn't get to uh, nearly everything I was hoping we will. I kind of knew we wouldn't on on the uh, weekend show. And so we have plenty of interesting stuff to talk about here on this midweek supporters episode, starting with uh, something, uh, a Texas story, but I think that has at least some national implications. That that has to do with the Texas's attorney general, uh, Ken Paxton, who he was impeached by the Texas House of Representatives, the state house. It was an overwhelmingly bipartisan vote. It was 121 to 23. This is in a Republican-dominated state. But he was acquitted by Texas State Senate on a largely party-line vote. Only two of the 31, uh, there's 31 members of Texas's state Senate, only two of the 19 Republicans voted to convict Paxton on any of the 16 charges he faced. And so 21 votes, a two-thirds majority, were, were needed for a conviction, meaning that they would have required, I'll do the math quickly, um, nine Republicans to vote with the 12 Democrats for a conviction, which didn't happen. And Paxton has been for a while a very close ally of Donald Trump. He has been under scrutiny for uh, allegations of ethics problems since, well, since becoming Texas's governor or sorry, Governor, Attorney General back in 2015. And even though he was not convicted in this uh, by, by the state Senate, the Justice Department's public integrity section is still conducting an investigation into allegations of corruption and abuse of office. And he's also facing state charges for securities fraud. And there's going to be a trial date set in that, uh, I believe, coming in October. And according to reporting from the Texas Tribune, the outcome was really far from certain in the Texas State Senate, but when party members realized they couldn't be positive that they would have the votes for conviction, they made essentially the safe political calculation and backed off. And, and to me, it seems like the Texas House had good reason to so overwhelmingly impeach Paxton. There was a mound of evidence, including from whistleblowers in his own office, num- a number of them. I, I think he he has... He po- positively reeks of corruption, Menendez level and above corruption. And I, I often don't find myself in agreement with the Wall Street Journal editorial board, but I do hear uh, the, uh, last week they wrote the fix was in from the start. And while this might be a short term victory for Texas Republicans, it's going to lead to longer term problems if the dominant Republican majority in Texas just decides that they're going to dismiss corruption as unimportant when that corruption happens to be from their party. May, what do you think about this? Well, 
let's not pretend, and you kind of mentioned this, that Paxton is actually off the hook in any way. These whistleblower allegations are part of investigations, including by the FBI. Um, you know, he's facing his securities uh, fraud trial. So impeachment as a remedy and and lack of going for impeachment, I don't think should be equal, just like, therefore, we don't care about fraud as a Republican party. Um, there will be a court process to address a lot of this. And I think that that was one of the concerns that was at least raised by the lieutenant governor, who is also part of the sort of conservative wing in Texas. So a Paxton ally, I guess you could say, um, which is that the House doesn't have the procedures that actually you would want if you're going to try and take someone, you know, something away from someone. It doesn't. They don't cross-examine witnesses. They don't even swear witnesses in. Also, the person is just automatically kicked out um, after that and has to wait the Senate trial, which is certainly not how we do it at the federal level. So, yeah, you know, is is Paxton my poster child for how I want politicians to act? No. Is the impeachment process my go-to for when there are pending criminal charges? Also, no. Uh, it's a very anti-democratic process and maybe one that should be taken after a court of law has ruled um, to the extent you feel like there's not going to be a political answer uh, coming up. But Texas's history has only two successful impeachments. And it's not because Texas politicians have been angels throughout history. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I don't want to read too much into this. I think maybe it's business as usual rather than, um, some sort of aberration. It, you know, it, it's interesting that the point you raise about, uh, the proper, uh, or the appropriate use of the impeachment process, because I guess you can make a good case that. Well, if if there are criminal charges, that the appropriate forum then would be, in fact, the the the, the, the criminal law, right? The system, and as opposed to this system, which you could argue maybe is should be at least generally speaking reserved for instances in which there isn't necessarily a criminal violation, or at least one that would be uh, that would come before a court. But there are things that might make somebody unfit for office. And I think that's a that's an interesting distinction. And you could say I'd be curious to think how that might apply to something like the Donald Trump case or the Joe Biden case and so forth. And so I think I find myself largely agreeing with you. Now, it's different when it comes to President of the United States because there are issues of, well, if Justice Department policy is not to indict a sitting president, then 
what do you do? But there's no state policy on not indicting a sitting attorney general. So that's a whole different situation. But, but I think my, my initial inclination is to agree with you that it's probably, it makes more sense and it feels somehow more appropriate to allow those criminal charges to run their course before you maybe engage in some sort of a political process. So, but that being said, why do you think so many Texas Republicans in the House just decided to go ahead with this? Yeah, and I want to bring in something that one of the listeners, J.K. Dawson, mentioned, one of my friends, Sarah Isger, uh, Texan. Um, and she, and I think a lot of other Texans have rightly pointed out that there really is no strong Democratic party in Texas. And so the sort of competition that you see in Texas is conservative Republicans versus moderate Republicans. And it is pursued with the same level of vigor that you would have Republicans versus Democrats in uh, more purple states. And so there is just some of this like partisan loyalty that is occurring where Dade Phillips, who is the Speaker of the Texas House, is his partisan loyalty is this moderate wing versus the Senate and the the head of the Senate is Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. His partisan loyalty is toward the conservatives. And so I think, and Ken Paxton is part of the conservatives. So with the House, they have great disdain for their political enemy, who is Ken Paxton, versus the conservatives. They don't really want less, uh, you know, corruption. And, you know, everyone's had some problems with Ken Paxton here or there. That said, who do you hate more? Right. Your guy <laughs> who actually has been a pretty phenomenal attorney general as far as conservative priorities. Or do you hate the moderates in the House who won't pass anything that you've sent over? This is some of the frustration in Texas, which is you've got this super conservative state. So you've got the uh, conservative Senate saying, OK, I want to do you know this on the border wall. I want to do this with school choice. And then you've got the House saying, well, I don't know about school choice because we've got a lot of teachers in our more rural areas. Like, what are you talking about? We're conservatives. We do school choice. And so there's this point up animosity um, that has almost little to do with who the actors are. But it's just like your standard. It would just if you pretended it was Republicans versus Democrats rather than Republicans versus Republicans, then you'd like very much understand it where Hunter Biden, who like, I don't what uh, you uh, understand what you're talking about. So that that I think is driving 95 percent of what's going on. Well, that's really interesting because I think we are so used now to looking at everything through that single lens of Republican, Democrat, left and right. And we don't necessarily appreciate those other divisions that can be so very important, like those those interparty things or institutional rivalries and that sort of thing. And, and I think it says a lot about how our political culture has just been so almost monomaniacally focused on that one division. And sometimes, as you point out, as others have pointed out, that that there are other important divisions that can be just as and sometimes more important in these things. So, yeah, that's uh, yeah. I, and I want to point out one more 
thing that should maybe color our assessment of this, which is the thing that is being proposed is not putting Ken Paxton in jail, right? It's just stripping him of his title, right? It's something that it, it's just anti-democratic. It's purely anti-democratic. Some, there are a lot of things in our world that are anti-democratic. Doesn't mean it's bad. Um, and so the question should not be whether he's necessarily a bad guy deserving to go to jail or somehow corrupt in that sense. It is, is this anti-democratic tool necessary um, in this case? And what I find a little bit uh, interesting and which would weigh against using this tool is that these allegations were extremely public when Ken Paxton was going through the primary process against a very well-funded and very well-known Bush rival. In fact, uh, this Bush, who was, I think, the land commissioner beforehand, he put up a website that was, it wasn't Crooked Ken, it was, it was Ken the Crook, literally KenTheCrook.com. And you just went to KenTheCrook.com and it had everything crooked that Ken Paxton has ever done or been accused of doing. And the voters in the primary process voted for Ken Paxton by like 68% of the primary vote. So like, okay, well, they had all the information. They overwhelmingly voted for him. This was a major issue, if not the issue during the campaign. So like, maybe this guy deserves to be in jail. But if we're going to give any nod to democracy, then it seems as though the people had full knowledge and have spoken. Yeah, I I, I really I think that's an, an excellent point. And I think whether we're talking about Ken Paxton, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, we should understand that an impeachment process is essentially an attempt to uh, subvert the will uh, of the people. Well, at least if those people knew about the information beforehand, there's some significant part of it, as they, as you pointed out, as they did in the, the Paxton case. And so that should be taken very, very seriously. And uh, I mean, obviously, there are there are some, but not necessarily perfect parallels to presidential impeachments. But I think in, in any case, when, whenever you say it's whenever you uh, embark on a course that would essentially overturn or negate the results of an election, you better be really, really sure about what you're doing. And I think we we both agree on that. All right. Well, moving on to something, well, entirely different. Yeah, definitely entirely different. Uh, well, every once in a while, it's nice to talk about policy stuff. We don't get the opportunity to do that as much as I, I would like. But I, I'd like to think that, you know, we're, we're, we're partisan, so many partisan divisions, but I'd like to think that one thing that Democrats and Republicans can more or less agree on, at least those who are sports fans, is that at least college sports fans, is that there are some serious problems in college sports, though, you know, I guess what they are and how to fix them. Maybe there's a little less consensus on that. But I bring this up because recently Ted Cruz, who's the ranking Republican on the Senate Commerce Committee, he said that the odds he thought were 60-40 in favor of Congress passing name, image, and likeness, or NIL, as it's called, regulations for college athletes. And this is something that's been a big issue in college athletics since back in 2021. And that was when the Supreme Court looked at the NCAA's rules on education-related benefits for students and 
unanimously basically said, your whole business model is one big violation of antitrust law. I mean, they didn't quite say that, but more or less, actually, Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence essentially said that. Um, and this ended up leading to the NCAA suspending its almost certain to be found legal rules that prohibited college athletes from profiting from NIL. And then a number of states jumped in, passed or considered or considering their own NIL laws. And so now we have this sort of patchwork system, depending on the state you're in. And so the NCAA has been pushing Congress to adopt a single federal standard that would include antitrust pr protection for the NCAA, because right now the organization is vulnerable to all sorts of antitrust-based legal challenges, uh, one big one coming up. And they're also hoping that Congress stipulates that student-athletes are not employees of their schools, their conferences, or the NCAA. Now, uh, Republican Ted Cruz and Democrat Chris Murphy, they're both members of the Senate Commerce Committee. That's where this legislation would be considered. They've pushed their own proposals. They agree on one big point, that the NCAA can't restrict student athletes from entering into these NIL contracts. But Cruz's approach is much more NCAA friendly because it would give them limited antitrust protection would put the NCAA in charge of overseeing, overseeing NIL and would stipulate college athletes are students and not employees. And again, this comes at a time when there are a number of cases against the NCAA. I mentioned one big one, House versus NCAA, which uh, three former college athletes are asking for back pay and a piece of the NCAA's kind of multi-billion dollar broadcast revenues. And more importantly than that, they're asking, they're asking the U.S. District Judge in the case, Claudia Wilkin, for class certification, which would, if it's granted, bring in potentially thousands of former student athletes. And if the NCAA lost, they would be looking at more than a billion dollars in damages, potentially. So with that kind of backdrop, uh, May, I'm wondering what you think. Let's start with the potential federal legislation whether you agree with Senator Cruz that it's more likely than not to happen and what, if so, what, what you think it might look like in the end? So I do think it has to happen. Um, I, at least in Texas, I can see a collision course because, and, and a lot of other, these other states too, the NCAA has tried to say and has said, you can't have these essentially university structures, booster structures, putting in these NIL deals for people like before they get to campus. I mean, you're just throwing money at these kids and other schools are not going to be able to compete. Also, like there's it just feels corrupt. And then you have Texas through the legislature saying if the NCAA does anything or comes after any college, there's you can sue the NCAA. So the NCAA is not allowed to do that. So you've just got state laws uh, firing at the NCAA, the NCAA trying to fire at schools who are, um, I don't want to say bribing, but like <laughs> taking every yeah. advantage they can for... Uh, college athletes. And uh, so there there does have to be some solution. But I think the closer we get to these students being employees, unionizing, getting paid to visit, not to even attend, 
to visit. This is Ohio State said we're we're not going to be able to compete soon because some of these kids will not even visit a college unless they are paid up front um, to, to visit. And like these schools can't afford it once because during the visit, that's expensive too. These are enormous athletes. You're taking them out to dinner. And then also if they unionize, then all of a sudden, how are you going to play women's sports? I mean, you're going to, they're going to demand so much money for, uh, for men's football and men's basketball. It, it's just such a disaster. So yes, it has to be regulated, but it doesn't seem like college anymore then. Like, just blow it up. Then there shouldn't be college sports and just make a minor league. Um, because how is this even school? And I mean, this relates, I think, a little bit to the conferences having absolutely no geographic connection. If you have the ACC, the Atlantic Conference, uh, pulling in Stanford from the as you might notice, Pacific Ocean, then I, I, I do not see anything that looks like college athletics here. And maybe instead of scratching our heads and figuring out how do we like, maybe we just say this all should be a minor league, which I know nobody's going to like because everybody loves college sports because they like watching like the JV team compared to pro for some reason. Um, but it's it's a real big mess, and I I don't think it's going to go well for anything below the like hugely funded SEC schools, and I I also don't think it's going to go well for women. If you want to hear the rest of Mays and my conversation about the NCAA and NIL legislation, as well as our thoughts on the Senate's dress code and John Fetterman and Danny Masterson's rape conviction and Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis' role in writing pre-sentencing letters on behalf of Masterson. Will you get all of that in the full supporters midweek episode, which you can get even if you're not a supporter, though we hope you'll become one. Here's how this works. If you become a supporter, you get the full midweek episode every week, as well as ad-free versions of both the midweek and our regular episodes. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash politics guys, or you can just look at the show notes and you will find the support links there, which include Venmo, we're at politics guys, as well as PayPal. In addition to getting those full episodes ad-free, you also have access to our Discord group, which is very lively. There's always a lot of interesting stuff going on there as well. And there are other benefits at different levels of support. Again, to check it all out, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. But if you'd like to get that full midweek show and you're not in a position to support the podcast financially, that's totally not a problem. I'm happy to help you out. Just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you set up with that entire midweek episode. And finally, as always, a very special thanks to our executive producers. They are a wonderful bunch. Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.